economic plan to try and transform their world and create a link to uh, Europe that is not dependent on anyone else. And uh, they're, you know, here they're operating like a major economic power that they have become. The question arises, who regards this initiative as a threat? The United States is deeply hostile to it. That's Tariq Ali, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power. Part two of a special two-part program. The ignominious debacle in Afghanistan was predictable and predicted. Afghans, like most people, don't appreciate foreign invaders occupying their country. Just ask the British and the Russians. But the U.S. and its imperial hubris thought it was different. It would nation-build in Afghanistan and bring democracy to that land. Meanwhile, China is watching the U.S. squander its wealth on military adventures. The decline of U.S. power is evident. In its place, China is rapidly expanding its influence. Its Belt and Road Initiative is an ambitious global infrastructure project, a new Silk Road. China, as the quip goes, had a bad couple of centuries of wars, invasions, famine, and disease. But now it is back. It is a force to be reckoned with. Its economic clout is increasing, and it will soon be the world's biggest economy. Our guest today is Tariq Ali, an internationally renowned writer and activist who was born in Lahore, Pakistan. For many years, he's been based in London, where he is an editor of New Left Review. He's the author of many books, including The Clash of Fundamentalisms, Pirates of the Caribbean, Speaking of Empire and Resistance, and The Forty-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. He was at his home in London when I talked with him on September 9th and 10th. Welcome to the program. Very good to be back. You no doubt have heard Gore Vidal's definition of the USA, the United States of uh, amnesia. Memory and the uses of memory. Imperialism constantly reinvents itself. It comes up with new rationales and excuses. Today's disaster is quickly forgotten. It reminds me of that uh, Milan Kundera comment from the Book of Laughter and Forgetting on memory and at the speed at which events are moving. The bloody massacre he wrote in Bangladesh quickly covered over the memory of the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia. The assassination of Allende drowned out the groans of Bangladesh. The war in the Sinai Desert made the people forget Allende. The Cambodian massacre made people forget Sinai, and so on and so forth, until ultimately everyone lets everything be forgotten. Yeah, the strong words. Uh, some of us don't. Chomsky doesn't. John Pilger doesn't. We don't. But uh, we're a handful. I mean, this loss of memory is 
a very careful orchestrated part of foreign policy. It's, it shouldn't be isolated from that. Uh, most of the media networks, especially now, get are managed. They are managed by foreign offices, by the State Department, by intelligence services. And this includes even liberal papers like The Guardian and The New York Times. If a story is considered particularly damaging, lots of behind-the-scenes negotiations go on to see whether it should appear at all or whether, if it appears, in what form it should appear. And I'll tell you something, that in cultures which have not been afflicted by this, cultures that still deploy uh, uh, and are based on a lot of storytelling and oral history, this history goes deep. The people in Afghanistan know that they were first conquered by the British, whom they defeated on a number of occasions. Then the Russians, even before that, Khushal Khan Khatak talks about the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb invading uh, Afghanistan, where he got his comeuppance. And he, he attacks the Mughal Emperor, says, have you nothing better to do than spill the blood of incontinent India onto Afghan soil? He asks that question. And these songs are still recited today in parts of Afghanistan and, and uh, Pakhtunkhwa. The Pashtuns remember their poets. So what is more worrying is that the atomization of thought, of culture, of how history is taught now in the West in particular, though not exclusively, is part of the downgrading of history. I mean, I've always argued that postmodernism and that whole wave really denied history and therefore played a very useful part uh, in satisfying the needs of the establishment. They became celebrities, their views were lauded, not all of them, quite a lot of them, on campuses, uh, etc. The target was history, and the target was especially a history which tried to explain why A happened, why B happened, why C didn't happen. In other words, what I'm stressing is that this is not a, a natural phenomenon. It is the way in which capitalism functions uh, in and its part and parcel of the political culture of the current phase of capitalism uh, that we are going through. I mean, in the 19th century, it was very different. How history was not forgotten like that by either side. Uh, but today, it's, it's, it's designed to be forgotten. And I think that is uh, what is uh, worrying and what we have to bear in mind and challenge, really uh, a challenge. Let's talk a little bit again about uh, Pakistan and on again, off again, U.S. uh, ally. Uh, Its prime minister is uh, Imran Khan, the legendary cricketer who told PBS in late July The U.S. really messed it up in Afghanistan. Hardly a deep insight. But anyway, uh, he happens to be from a Pashtun family born in Lahore, your hometown. What's his record been since he became prime minister of Pakistan in 2018? 
Uh, how does he deal with the powerful intelligence military complex, as well as the big capitalists in the country? Does he challenge them? Look, Imran is someone I've known for a long, long time. And uh, he, you know, was a friend, I have to say. I haven't seen him since he came to power. But there was the hope on the part of many young people who love cricket and who worship him as a cricketer that he would be different. That's why people voted for him, that he would end dynastic rule uh, in Pakistan, the two families, the Puttos and the Sharifs, who dominated Pakistani politics for a long time. That he did do. But his government has proved to be no different, really. I mean, there's a large degree of corruption. In fact, one of the surveys pointed out that corruption under Imran had actually shot up and was higher than under the uh, Sharifs or the Zardari Bhutto clans. So on that level, it's nothing. Economically, the country is in a total mess. The people running the finance ministries, etc., are jokers, according to reports I receive regularly. Uh, Nawaz Sharif, by contrast, basically his only redeeming feature, in my opinion, was that both he and Shabazz were businessmen, and they had a businessman skill. So the fact that Nawaz Sharif could con consider trade with India and build a massive airport at Lahore, which he hoped would serve parts of the Indian Punjab as well when the time came, was naive. But he was thinking about it like a businessman, that if we open trade deals and gradually relax tensions with India, which, of course, the army was totally opposed to, so it never got anywhere. So this huge airport now, I think about five or six planes land a day at it, if that. But coming back to Imran, I think very few people doubt this, that he was the favoured candidate of the military. And the reason they wanted him in was because they'd fallen out on different levels with the other two parties and they thought, give him a chance. So they have. Yeah, the control of the military exercises over politics in Pakistan is now on a much higher level than before, except when, of course, the military rules directly. That they don't like doing, because why should they pick up the anger of ordinary people? They can blame politicians. So Imran's party more or less does what the army says. Now, as for the foreign policy, here we have to understand two things. That Pakistan, for nearly 50 years now, while on the face of it, totally subservient to the United States, and in the early days, genuinely subservient to the United States, uh, has another friend. And it's had that friend certainly since the late 60s, and that is the People's Republic of China, both in its communist phase and in its current state capitalist phase. The uh, Chinese of course, never interfere in the internal affairs of a country. Uh, they're very proud and they stress that. And so they can't be bothered who rules Pakistan as long as they, are, they can speak to the key people. And the key people are the army. So the Chinese have maintained contact with Pakistan, regardless of the government, with the Pakistani military and its uh, various tentacles. And so that gives Pakistan a lot more confidence 
than it would have were it simply an underling state, like most of the Europeans. I mean, Pakistan has more sovereignty than Britain does, to be perfectly frank, in terms of what it can do and what it can't do in relation to the United States. And I remember when, after a big earthquake in Pakistan, the Cubans sent in hundreds of doctors to help without charging anything, without asking for medicines, just asking the government to provide us with tents and clean water. That's all we need from you. And they went into villages where no doctor had entered. And the Pashtun and Hazarawal villages where, because a bulk of the doctors were women, the men there had no problems with women seeing their wives, their daughters, their sisters, no problem at all. And so the Cubans made a huge impact on the region, which the army was very aware of. But uh, Musharraf, General Musharraf, who was then the leader of Pakistan, uh, you know, as a result of a military coup, felt he had to go to the non-aligned conference in Havana to thank the Cubans. So he did. He attended it. Pakistan was formerly a member. And he thanked the Cubans. And then he had a brief meeting with Chavez, Hugo Chavez, who was also present. And Chavez came out just in a, you know, half laughing and half with his head in his hands. And uh, told a close aide who told me the next day, he said, these people are truly amazing, the degree of cynicism. So he was asked why. And he said, General Musharraf said to me, you know, Commandante Chavez, what's wrong with you? You challenge the Americans publicly. You speak your mind openly. You threaten them. You do this. It's better to do what we do, agree with them in public, and then do whatever we want to do in private. And I think that is not as, you know, he wasn't lying. The Pakistani military have done that, especially in relation to uh, Afghanistan. So when Imran said the Americans have messed it up, he was reprimanded by the ISI chief, who was then in Washington to meet people at the Pentagon and uh, at the State Department. And he said to them, which was published in the New York Times, don't worry, our prime minister can get a little excited, but, you know, we are the people here to talk with you, so don't get too worked up about what he said. Not that what Imran said was wrong. It was the most obvious thing to say, which half of the United States establishment realizes. So I think one has to see Pakistan today as a country where there is a civilian facade, which is not a total joke. Uh, but the army is in command. Nothing major can happen in the country without army approval. That's the situation. And now with the Taliban victory in Afghanistan, the army is cock hope I mean, only yesterday, Pakistan's um, finance minister was asked, but don't you think there will be chaos in Afghanistan? They don't have any civil servants after 20 years of occupation, to do the budget, to do this, to do that. And the finance minister said, well, what are we here for if we are not to help them out on this? We can go and help them out doing this, that, and the other. So um, the uh, mood is very ebullient.
inside general headquarters in uh, Rawalpindi because they have scored with the Taliban a huge triumph in the region. That's where ISI headquarters are in Rawalpindi. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's the ISI headquarters are there in Rawalpindi, as are the headquarters of the Pakistan army. And I always warn against giving too much importance to the ISI these days. It was at its peak during the jihad, so-called, against the Russians, when it became semi-autonomous because the Americans used to deal with it directly in terms of arming the Mujahideen and paying them money. Uh, but the situation is now returned to normal. The ISI is the military intelligence arm of the Pakistan army. Uh, its generals are responsible to uh, their chiefs of staff. And nothing the ISI does, nothing has not been approved by the Pakistan Army High Command as a whole. It's important to understand that. Sometimes people prefer it, even in Pakistan, to say it's the ISI, so that they can then say, oh, but this is a slightly crazed wing of the Pakistan Army. Nonsense. It's not the case at all. Most of the generals have served in other capacities in the army as a whole. It acts as a convenient cover and... Pakistan military is also capable of using it. Oh, that was an adventurist plan uh, of the ISI. <laughs> you know, nothing like that exists. Now, Pakistan is part of Beijing's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It's an enormous project, a kind of new Silk Road linking, if completed, Asia and Europe. And Pakistan is a key part. There's the port at Gwadar, a huge undertaking. And I should mention that this BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, has also large investments in Africa and Latin America as well. There's been some backlash um, in Pakistan. Uh, there were shootings of uh, Chinese in Karachi. Uh, in July, there was an attack on Chinese engineers, resulting in uh, nine deaths. So talk about the Belt, Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative in relation to Pakistan? Well, uh, Beijing's BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, is a gigantic economic plan to try and transform their world, which is largely the Asian world, and create a link to uh, Europe that is not dependent on anyone else. And uh, they're, you know, here they're operating like a major economic power that they have become. Whether there is a payback in a direct sense, I don't know. But certainly within Pakistan, the establishment is delighted by this because a lot of money comes in. The Chinese are very wary of corruption and often insist on Chinese personnel supervising uh, some of these projects because they simply don't trust the contractors or government agents who've been appointed uh, to help. Um, and there is clearly some hostility to this. Though the hostility, interestingly, comes from ethnic Baloch, uh, whose real anger is that so many Punjabis have been employed when Gwadar, 
this city that the Chinese have leased from Pakistan. I don't know how long the lease is. It's quite a long lease. Before that, it was leased to one of the Gulf states. Now it's leased to China. And the Chinese have transformed this city. I haven't visited it, but they have transformed this city. It's a modern city. Uh, It's their big uh, port uh, for transportation of uh, oil from Iran and elsewhere uh, to to China. And they will guard it. Uh, There's a huge naval base which uh, they've constructed. But here, too, had the government been intelligent and employed local people in the main to do it, there would have been limited tensions. There would have been some, but there would have been limited tensions. So the question arises, who regards this initiative as a threat? There's only one global power which does. The Europeans, by the way, are not so opposed to it. The United States is deeply hostile to it. I mean, the Taliban have denied that they had anything to do with knocking off Chinese engineers. The Pakistan government knows who it is and said they would carry out an investigation. And the Chinese said, don't bother. We are going to send our own team of investigators to find out really who carried out these acts. And who is it? I mean, I honestly, there's no sort of evidence come to the fore yet, but I would not be surprised if the United States were not behind this to attempt to destabilize the operation. It would be in character. Uh, The United States always likes using local relays to do work which they would rather not be seen to do themselves. And uh, the Baloch have been flirting with the United States when they were hoping to get independent. I mean, their their politicians were barely out of the U.S. embassy. I mean, I had I publicly criticized them, I mean, because many of them were my friends in the olden days and said, this is not going to get you anywhere. Because it comes back to the question of what independence means in today's world. You're never going to be fully independent. Many of you, the Baloch and Pashtuns are in Karachi. Let's suppose for the sake of argument you become independent. Would you rather be allied to India and the United States than Pakistan? And some of the nationalist leaders say, yes, we would. So I said, then Kashmir means nothing to you. They have their own battles to fight. So, you know, a very rigid form of nationalism simply bases itself on the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so it's a very messed up situation within the country in these regions, not so much in the Pashtun areas, but certainly in uh, Balochistan. And Gwadar is there, seen by Baloch nationalists as an initiative of Pakistan and China, which is true that they've been cut out of the action. So it's a complex uh, situation. Now, how might China's treatment of its Uyghur uh, Muslim minority, which has gotten, of course, a lot of attention uh, here in the United States, um, how does that cloud relations with uh, Pakistan and uh, the uses of the Uyghur minority by Washington in advancing its own imperial interests? Well, the Uyghurs and the Chinese treatment of them, which, by the way, the one thing I would challenge very strongly, 
that they've been mistreated, that they uh, want to create a sort of effectively a single Chinese identity uh, by sending in more and more sectors of the Han people to live there. They haven't done that totally as yet with the Uyghurs, but they have done that in Tibet. That's the method. What is interesting that the Uyghurs have not been defended in public by Indonesia, Pakistan, the two largest Muslim states in the world, or by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Who has taken the Uyghur cause uh, to heart is the leader of NATO in the East, Erdogan, and Turkey. And there is no doubt in my mind that trouble is being planned in the Uyghur region. I was, what I was going to finish the previous sentence was by saying, despite the mistreatment and imprisonment and depriving of civil liberties to the extent that they exist for anyone, it's not a genocidal situation. It is not the case that the Chinese are wiping out this population. And when I hear the word genocide these days, it's overused, not just here, but in lots of places. And the purpose of overusing it is to create an atmosphere that intervention might might be necessary. Uh, the Uyghurs, two things happened according to the information I received. One is that over the last few months, there was a big seminar in Sweden, uh, which was conducted by people close to the intelligence agencies. And it was decided that the two European countries that should act as the supposed mediators in this process of Hungary and Sweden. The third big uh, country uh, is a NATO country, Turkey. And there are, I was given this figure, I don't know to what extent it's true. It wouldn't totally surprise me if it was slightly exaggerated. But there are 50,000 Uyghurs in Turkey who are being trained and armed by the Turkish government. Some of them have been used in Syria to give them some battle practice. And others are being armed and kept, probably for being infiltrated back. The Afghans have made a total commitment to China. We are not going to allow these people, i.e. the Uyghurs, on our soil to, to destabilize China. Believe us. And I don't think they will. But Turkey plays its own game. And Turkey also has been supporting some of the Northern Alliance people in Afghanistan itself. So there is there is a linkage there. And uh, we'll see what happens. But I mean, if I'm saying this to you, David, the notion that the Chinese are unaware of what's going on is just uh, risible. They know everything that's going on, and no doubt they will deal with it in their own way. It's better always, this is what these big powers never understand, to be public about it. Say, this is what's going on. This is our evidence. Here is the evidence. And we appeal to American citizens not to allow this to go forward because it creates a very dangerous world. You know, we could start saying, and some of the Chinese young wolves 
in the Foreign Office are coming out with very sharp statements, by the way, saying how many uh, black people are you holding prisoner in your prisons in the United States? What are the incarceration rates? Don't worry, we are not going to invade one. You know. There was a meeting in Anchorage, Alaska, with uh, Chinese officials and Secretary of State uh, Blinken, in which uh, the Chinese said, you know, don't, you have no right to lecture us about uh, human rights. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this, is, this is something which uh, very few countries can say to the United States. I mean, Chavez once told me himself that, every, that after his speech at the United Nations where he denounced uh, President Bush, he said the Arab countries, including from what you would call, and I would agree, reactionary Arab countries, crowded around me to shake my hand and said, thank you for saying what we no longer can say. So the Chinese are now saying this stuff, and it does have an impact in American public opinion, and were they to do it more systematically, it would have a bigger impact. You know? The reporting in the Chinese press on the uh, fall of Kabul has been vast. And from what my Chinese friends, who are not supporters of the government, by the way, tell me it's been very effective, saying this is what happens when you go in and occupy a country, etc., uh, etc., et uh, with facts and figures. You're listening to Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power. Part two of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, by giving us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, or MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. What is China doing in Hong Kong? It's routinely described as a crackdown. I think it probably is accurate. I think the what the Chinese probably think now is that we gave too many concessions to get the Brits out when they had to go out anyway. Uh, but at that time, they were at their friendliest in relationships to the West, so they wanted to maintain this. And they probably believed it, too, that Hong Kong could be kept as a part of China, isolated from the mainland, uh, and so it didn't matter. But, you know, the thing is, it can't be isolated from the mainland. The links are there, uh, literature, television programs, videos, internet links, etc. travel. You know, it's very difficult to, to keep that. There is a tiny layer within the Hong Kong elite who would rather Hong Kong became like Singapore, kept going as a state and back. The Singaporeans, by the way, themselves are very pro-China. <laughs> One should have no doubts about that, the Singapore government, that is. 
So, but I think a majority would just like what they've been arguing for, you know, some degree of freedom of speech, freedom to publish, freedom to uh, write, to speak, and an autonomous assembly. That's all. Most of the Hong Kong people would be quite happy with that. But the Chinese have now decided to effectively to bring Hong Kong into line with the rest of China. That is what is going on. You know, the fact that Hong Kong had these autonomous uh, rights is a positive thing, because sooner or later, the Chinese themselves will have to grant more liberties to their own people. I'm not obsessed by this question, as some people are, but simply for the better running of the state and accountability in relation to the population. Uh, which means that many people in China would challenge the existing structures, class structures that have grown up in China. And China is not a country without a long history of rebellions and peasant rebellions, and then in the 20th century, working class opposition. So it's not a, a passive country. And I think the main worry of the Chinese is this, it's that this might spread over. Instead of thinking, well, how do we want our own country to look in 25, 30 years' time? You know, it's a complex country because it's so huge that often, you know, that God knows how many hundreds of thousands of publishers there are who publish all sorts of stuff. In my book of interviews with Edward Say, that was published in China. And it's because some publisher liked it. And, and it has nothing, no references to China at all. We didn't discuss that. But so there is, there is a culture which is not dissident in relation to the Chinese, but which is a dissident culture in relation to the globe. And this is published and uh, printed. So China is not, strictly speaking, a state where everything is under control. What they regard as urgent things are uh, strictly controlled. But with Xi now deciding to make a turn away from a very strict uh, neoliberal agenda, which they had with Chinese characteristics, which they had to a more state agenda and warning the big capitalists, behave yourselves, uh, is something that has had some impact on the country as a whole. Also, the uh, dominant ideology in China now is Chinese nationalism. And for that, they are collectively, I would say, in their vast majority, with the government against the United States, that no one should have any doubt about that. They're not going to be uh, broken up. So if the United States is planning some adventure in Xinjiang, I would advise it to desist. What, what do you want to do that for? To make up for your defeats elsewhere? It'll be a defeat. It's not going to get you anywhere. Far better to negotiate with the Chinese. July marked the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. There were celebrations, of course, in the country. But the question is, how communistic is Chinese communism? Well, you know, this is the subject of numerous books now. I mean, a book comes out every two months discussing what is going on in China, because China has been a huge success story economically. 
mean, there's no two ways about that. The, uh, what the Chinese have succeeded in doing, with the Communist Party still in control, but very changed as an organization, is a turn to capitalism, which has transformed the country and made it into the workshop of the world. I mean, you know, I've argued this before, that the role China plays economically is analogous to the role Britain played in the 19th century. It's the workshop of the world, and that there's nothing too small or too big for them to produce if there is a demand for it. So the big question is, where will it all end? And I think this century in which we are still living uh, is the century that should be known as the Chinese century. And by the time this century comes to an end, we will find out exactly what has happened in China itself. It's very difficult to uh, forecast what will happen to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Where will it go? Will other parties emerge? Will China break up? The big fear of the Chinese leaders is, I mean, they know the country's history well, and they regard the period of Western occupation and then landlordism, different gangs of landlords fighting each other, China crumbling, that is the horror for them. So to keep the country united is a central priority. And the point is that given the size of China, that combined with giving free reign to capitalism opens up dangers because or breakaway states and breakaway uh, regions who are saying, we're doing much better than region. Why? Why should our money go there? You know, so uh, that, to prevent that from happening, the party has maintained a very strict control. So it's not the case that the capitalists are dominant. It is a state that actually promotes and develops capitalism as it desires and wishes, Uh, that is in control. They're certainly within their power, if they wish to do it, is to end this experiment at some stage if it gets totally out of control. And given that they've developed a great deal, they could do that. But whether they will, whether it will ever come to that, I have to be honest and say, I do not know. Given the the example of uh, UK and US income, the sharp growth in income inequality, China is certainly mimicking that. There has been a, a huge surge of wealth. No doubt about that at all. Uh, but there has also been a huge growth of uh, the social infrastructure in the country. Some of the new towns that have been built have been built on a level and a scale unknown in the West, really. The United States never built places like this. Uh, I mean, they're big cities, of course, but I'm not talking about big cities. I'm talking about medium-sized cities. And here there has been a great degree of planning in building them. More people now live in homes or proper homes uh, than uh, uh, ever before. It's when people begin to feel that life is improving. You know, they have now created a class structure in which class differentials and uh, accompanying them salary differentials are huge, no doubt about it. The thing is that these are 
under the eye of the state still, much more so than in the West and the United States. I mean, here we talk about a free market, but when the system collapses, then the state steps in, as it did after the 2008 Wall Street crash, and makes sure that the banks are kept going. I mean, that is state intervention. The Chinese would do it on a more uh, impressive level, I think, had they to go down that particular route, given their background. One thing they have all fearful of is any break in the country. The second thing they would not like to see is any great working class upheavals to take action from below. But my own feeling is that that is the only way in which real structural changes can be brought about after this genuine great capitalist leap forward. That is what they have accomplished. Increasingly in the United States, there's talk of a new Cold War with China being the uh, adversary. Uh, The Pentagon has renamed its Pacific Command the Indo-Pacific Command, bringing in India. America's vast armadas patrol the waters off China's long coastline. The U.S. has a ring of bases surrounding China. Do you see Washington allowing China to challenge its supremacy without a fight? It depends. They would be very foolish to pick a fight with China in the zone where the Chinese are dominant. They would have to pick a fight which would involve Korea and Japan. Japan, as we know, is a U.S. underling state, never had a foreign policy of its own, and where Okinawa still houses a large number of U.S. troops. Japan is not a sovereign state by any stretch of the imagination. Whether the Japanese people and sections of the elite would automatically line up with the United States in some crazed adventure in relation to China. Difficult to to say with certainty. I would doubt it myself. Uh, The Australians are building a new base, which Obama had insisted be done as they were turning their sights on China. Now, there are two opinions on this generally. One is that they are bound to seek some trouble, the United States, and probably in the old days there was the Taiwan option and the Tibet option. These were the war games that used to be played, imaginary war games that used to be played in the Pentagon. Nowadays it's the Uyghurs in Hong Kong where these games are being played. I have to say, David, I may be wrong, of course, but uh, that the principal aim of surrounding China is to try and force the Chinese to do what what the Second Cold War forced the Russians into doing by competing with the United States and the Western powers on the level of armaments and wasting a lot of their energy, time, and wealth on trying to compete with the United States militarily. The Russians did it, and apart from Afghanistan, it was that crazed spending on uh, armaments that brought the Russian uh, bureaucracy down. I still remember the cover of The Economist when the Russians decided to go ahead. It said, oh, the joys of rearmament. 
and the joys were that they had trapped the Russians. Now, the Chinese know this happened. I mean, they're perfectly aware of this. So whether they're going to repeat that, I doubt. I mean, I know Chinese spending, especially on their Navy, has gone up uh, dramatically over the last decade. But let's hope they stop, because defensive spending is one thing. Offensive spending is uh, something completely different. And till now, the Chinese have shown a de- a, you know, intelligence uh, that escaped the uh, Russians during the Second Cold War. I mean, the Russians really got overstretched, intervening in Africa, intervening in Afghanistan, threatening here, threatening there, when they could achieve nothing. The Chinese are not going to do that, in my opinion. But this is something, uh, Western policy, I mean, U.S. policy towards uh, China, it's not totally popular in Europe either. The Germans have serious misgivings. Even the British, though the British military and the secret state are pro-American to an astonishing degree these days. Within the British establishment, there are voices that advise uh, restraint and not to go the whole way because they're very dependent on trade, not dependent in the sense that they would collapse, but dependent uh, on China for trade, uh, uh, etc., as are the Germans, for instance. The French don't particularly want a clash either of any serious sort with the Chinese. So any adventure would split the Western lines, and the Koreans are unhappy because what the U.S. have totally put a stop to is any serious discussion of Korean unity, having a unified Korean peninsula. And it's not that the North Koreans are opposed to it. I mean, they would have demand terms, obviously, but the South Koreans have gone blow hot, blow cold on that. And one reason is that if Korea became independent, you would have a situation where a unified Korean peninsula would have nuclear weapons because the unified army would have control of nuclear weapons. And that automatically these days gives the country quite a lot of sovereignty, which is why the North Koreans have them. I mean, in private North Korean people explain it like that, that without this, they'd have crushed, invaded us ages ago. Uh, the United States. Whether that's true or not, that is the thought. So if a Korean peninsula had nuclear weapons, the demands of the Japanese elite, military elite, and political elite would be insurmountable. They would insist on nuclear weapons too. And those nuclear weapons would then give Japan a sovereignty where they, you know, would become a major independent power again, even if it took some more time to get the troops out. So the complications in that sphere are not the same as they were in the case of the Soviet Union, where in effect a Cold War had existed from 1917 onwards, waged by both Britain and the United States in concert. So that is going to be difficult uh, to to, uh, repeat. But the Chinese are, of course, very well informed about all this. And uh, were such an adventure to be carried out to have a serious clash, the Chinese would respond. Well, what is China doing on islands in the South China Sea, claiming them as their territory and then uh, building military bases there? 
They're largely defensive, in my opinion, quite honestly. I mean, they haven't gone too much beyond that. I mean, whether it is uh, politically uh, correct or not is another question, but certainly in military terms, it makes some sense, given that you're surrounded permanently by uh, floating uh, arsenals uh, of ships carrying nuclear missiles, etc. It's the very least that the Chinese could do. It wouldn't be the way I would proceed, but I can see why they won't do it. I mean, that is a logic, a big power logic that comes uh, comes, uh, into play when people, big powers, feel threatened. The planet and its people are facing multiple existential crises. What kind of future does humanity face, given the level of the current crises? Well, the real question is, is the dominant ruling classes of the world, are they prepared to commit suicide? And I don't think any of them are. I don't think they have come to that stage yet where suicide or mutual suicide, mutually assured suicide, is the course that they have decided on. They will keep tinkering with the system. They will uh, try to make sure that at least for the very rich and the rich, the environment remains acceptable, but it might go out of their control. As I said earlier in this interview, there is no way of curbing, certainly on the ecological front, what is taking place without a global plan. That is planning, and that is planning against the market and its needs. And if they're not prepared to go in that direction, the climate will continue to deteriorate. And my friend Mike Davis used to say many decades ago that don't be surprised if catastrophes wipe us out rather than anything else. And I, I think of his his words now. I was critical of them at the time. But he was you know, talking also about planetary clashes and crashes. But, uh, you know, the fear is not that they won't do anything, but when they decided something has to be done, it'll be too late for a bulk of the world's population. Chris Hedges has written about the critical urgency for uh, movements. Where do you see the openings and movements for positive progressive change around the world? And what would you suggest for individuals to do? It's so hard for a single person to do anything. This is true. There are no political parties which one would automatically join. The only thing that exists are movements, sometimes against racism, sometimes uh, against uh, violations of uh, gender rights and you know these movements play their part and then they die down there's nothing permanent existing which we could say everyone should join so that is also something new that has come into existence since the late 90s and with the collapse of all the major left parties or even centrist, left-center parties, who carry on, but basically uh, 
basically offer nothing. I mean, look, the only hope one can offer these days without fantasizing is to try and act as collectively as possible. And that is mitigated against to a certain degree. I mean, this is one of the sides of the World Wide Web, so to speak, where people feel talking to each other, like you and I are talking now, is enough. We're in opposition. But there can be no successful opposition if it remains a virtual opposition. For an opposition to be real, it is to take place in the streets or within organizations or within institutions and be seen as such. And the French still carry on doing it on several levels. You know, uh, basically the Gilets jaunes was a movement against poverty, against what Macron's France has done. And interestingly, they didn't target what the old left used to target or march from the Place du Republique to the Bastille or the other way around. This time, the Gilets jaunes targeted the Trocadero, all the rich zones, and closed them down to make it very clear that however in Kuwait their demands were, they were still targeting the unacceptable uh, differentials in, on the level of wealth that are a feature now of every Western and um, Eastern country. So these things happen from time to time. But were I to say that, you know, this will somehow take us to the to heaven, I would be lying. It won't. And I, I, I really don't believe people who say if we did A, B, and C, D would happen. Because A, B, and C have become more and more difficult. And the growth of the far right everywhere, including in the uh, United States, is acts as a bulwark if too much change is demanded. I don't think they will ever be trusted. But, you know, it is interesting that in virtually three major European countries, Germany, Italy, and France, you have a huge far right. Some of them mask themselves and, you know, buy expensive creams to hide their complexions, uh, like Le Pen in France, but basically these are parties of the far right threatening the traditional establishments. The challenge is coming from the right, not the left. The left has capitulated by and large to the establishment, even to the extent of supporting wars in Afghanistan and elsewhere on civilizational grounds, etc. I want to thank you, Tariq Ali, uh, and I think I speak for a lot of people uh, around the world who appreciate your work and your commitment. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Stay well. You were just listening to Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power, part two of a special two-part program. Tariq Ali, an internationally renowned writer and activist, was born in Lahore, Pakistan. For many years, he's been based in London, where he's an editor of New Left Review. His articles appear in major newspapers and journals all over the world. He was at his home in London when I talked with him on September 9th and 10th. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado, 
We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, Kianga Yamata Taylor, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We also have a series of programs with Tariq Ali. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a card order for CDs of today's program, Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the Decline of U.S. Power, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You're listening to Next Level Radio only on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary or online around the world at CJSW.com.
Thank you. Thank you.